It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista, or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunnstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Port Arthur is on the island of Tasmania, just south of Australia. It's on the Tasman Peninsula and began as a timber station in 1830. Just three years later, the British government was using it as a penal colony. This was where they sent the most hardened criminals from Great Britain and re-offenders who committed crimes after being sent to Australia. Port Arthur was one of the strictest prisons in the entire British penal system. The site was abandoned as a prison in 1877 and has since become a tourist destination. Martin Bryant grew up a troubled kid who was never really able to get other people to understand him. After consecutive tragedies left him with too much money and not enough supervision, he decided that the world was against him and needed to be punished. This is Monsters. Martin Bryant was born on May 7, 1967 in Hobart, Tasmania. His parents, Maurice and Carlene, went on to have a daughter named Lindy. Maurice was a waterside worker, which was someone who transferred cargo between ships and other forms of transportation, and Carlene worked at a chocolate factory up until she had children. Carlene said that Martin started out as an easy baby. He was generally happy, though he rejected most physical affection. At about a year and a half old, Martin was running, climbing, and escaping, leaving his mother feeling discouraged. She knew they had difficulty bonding, but his constant running off wore her out quickly. When he was a toddler, he would disappear regularly and they would find him way out in a field playing quietly by himself. Without knowing exactly what else to do, Carlene would resort to leaving him on the front porch with a harness and leash keeping him in place. She would make sure he had lots of toys around to keep him occupied. 
not something that most people would consider appropriate, and someone had made a complaint about them tying their son up like a dog, but Carlene defended her actions. At least she knew he was safe and happy. Though he was physically active, by the time Martin was three, it was clear that he wasn't developing mentally at the rate he should. It seems as though Martin's parents chose opposing parenting styles when dealing with their son. Carlene was content with letting Martin be himself and left him alone with his behavioral issues. Maurice was more hands-on and it seemed to be the father's attempt to try to make Martin normal. As Martin grew older, Maurice would become the person that would help maintain at least a mild level of restraint with his son's behavior. While in primary school, Martin was bullied due to his odd behavior. Kids said that he would spend the entire day with his face all squished up like the sun was too bright or he had tasted something sour. Martin would try to play with the other kids, but his idea of playing was sneaking up on other kids from behind and then jumping onto them. When the other kids reacted negatively, Martin would start screaming and crying, and the other kids just wanted to get away from him. They didn't understand his behavior, which made them not want him around. When Martin was six years old, school psychologists had gotten reports that he had been torturing animals. It's unclear what was done about the reports, but as Martin got older, his demeanor grew darker and more violent. Not only was he harming animals, but he was bullying younger kids at his school. He was eventually transferred to a different school which had a special needs program. For some reason, when Martin was 14, his father thought that it would be a great idea to buy him a gun. Of course, it was only an air rifle, but it introduced Martin to the power and control of having a gun. Maurice would later claim that it was one of the worst decisions of his life, and Martin would go on to prove just how remarkably true that statement was. Martin started hiding in the bushes along the road and shooting at passing cars. A neighbor said that parrots used to come and eat fruit from the trees on their property, and one time, Martin used his air rifle to shoot all of the parrots from the trees. After shooting one, he then walked up to where it fell and shot it several more times, point-blank in the head. When police arrived, the neighbor recalled that the first thing Martin said to the officer was, quote, How many did I get? End quote. The day before his 16th birthday, Martin's parents decided to take him out of school. They began taking him to psychiatrist Dr. Eric Cunningham Dax, who immediately noticed that Martin had problems concentrating and he would regularly interrupt the doctor and talk about things he saw around the house. He asked how old the house was and wanted to talk about the fireplace. By that time, Martin was also still unable to read and write. After a few visits, Dr. Dax determined that Martin would never be able to hold a job because he would upset and annoy people to the extent that he would always be getting in trouble. The doctor determined that Martin would need to be put on disability. Martin spent the next three years living at home with his parents, which was uneventful by all accounts. Martin had a small disability stipend and did odd jobs to make extra money. In 1987, at the age of 19, Martin was making extra money by helping people with yard work and gardening. While walking the neighborhoods, he met a woman named Helen Harvey. Helen was the 54-year-old heiress to the Tattersall's Lottery Company. Tats Lottery, as it's known, is the official licensed operator of lotteries by the Victorian government. Helen lived in a mansion that was falling into disrepair, and Martin had approached her to ask if she would be interested in hiring him to mow the grass around the property. People who lived in the area considered Helen to be eccentric and reclusive, but generally friendly to the local shopkeepers. They did recall her smelling bad and wearing clothes that obviously needed to be washed. Martin quickly became a regular fixture around Helen's mansion. 
he would tend to the garden, help with repairs, and feed the 14 dogs and 40 cats. The dogs had free reign of the first floor, while Helen and her mother Hilza remained upstairs. Eventually, the young man would move into the mansion and would be seen with Helen during the days, shopping and eating dinner at some of the finest restaurants in town. Over the next three years, the two would buy more than 30 cars and a number of other luxury items for the estate. The more time that Helen spent with Martin, though, the less she spent caring for her ailing mother. Both Helen and Hilza had infected leg ulcers, and Hilza had been suffering from an undiagnosed broken hip for two years. In June of 1990, someone filed a complaint with the health department regarding the state of the property. The house was in complete squalor, and the city issued an order to have the property cleaned up and to remove the animals. Helen and Hilza were both taken to the hospital to have their wounds treated. After several weeks in the hospital, Hilza was moved to a nursing home where she died at the end of July. The RSPCA took away most of the animals and Maurice took time off of work to help clean up the house. They cleaned all of the mold out of the kitchen. They scraped the filth from the walls and floor. They filled up dumpsters full of rubbish, including Helen's entire wardrobe. After three months, when Helen returned to her mansion, it was clean and empty, but the city had made them unable to have any pets at the mansion in Hobart, so Helen purchased a rundown 72-acre farm in a town called Copping. It was halfway between Hobart and the Port Arthur Historic District. Once at the farm, Helen and Martin quickly began acquiring animals. People in the new community said they would often see one of their many cars parked in town with animals inside. Dogs, cats even miniature ponies. Martin also got into trouble for shooting tourists with his air rifle while they were buying fruit at a stand near the farm. When police were called about Martin's activities, they learned that he was often seen walking around the neighborhood at night with his rifle shooting at dogs and passing cars. They requested that he see a psychiatrist. While talking to the psychiatrist, Martin explained that he often fantasized about shooting people. The doctor knew that Martin was suffering from mental illness, but said that, as long as his father was watching over him, he would not be more than a nuisance to the public. Over the years, during Martin and Helen's friendship, Helen had begun driving very slowly any time Martin was in the car with her. Martin seemed unable to control his childish outbursts and would unexpectedly lunge at the steering wheel, causing Helen to lose control of the car. He caused three accidents already, but she continued to drive around town with him. Around this time, in order to continue receiving disability payments, Martin was required to go in for a reevaluation. After the meeting, the doctor noted, quote, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him and he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control, end quote. Even though the fact of reality was that Maurice wouldn't be able to keep Martin under control forever, it seemed that this assessment was ignored. On October 20th, 1992, the eccentric pair put three dogs into a car and drove north to do some shopping. When they were done that evening, they headed back to the farm. At some point during the drive, the car swerved into the wrong lane and hit a passing car head-on. Helen died immediately, and Martin was taken to the hospital with serious injuries to his head and neck. Two of the dogs died in the accident, and a third ran off, but returned to the farm a few days later. Some people believe that Martin must have grabbed the wheel and caused the car to crash, but Martin told police that Helen was distracted by two of the dogs fighting in the back seat. 
Almost a year prior, in November of 1991, Maurice had filed a will with the public trustee's office. He left his assets to Carlene, or to have them split between the children in the event of her death. Knowing that Martin would require extra resources, he left him the money from a superannuation fund worth more than $250,000. It's unclear why. Maybe Maurice told her about his will. But three weeks later, Helen also filed a will bequeathing all of her possessions to Martin. All of her animals, her mansion, her farm, her savings, and her income from the Tattersall Lottery. Martin spent seven months in the hospital recovering from his injuries and then went back to his parents' house to continue his recovery. While Martin was still in the hospital, Maurice went to the doctor to get help for his depression. This was actually the second time that the normally stoic man had brought up depression and anxiety to his doctor. The doctor prescribed him some antidepressants. After Helen's death and while Martin was recovering, Maurice quit his job and began taking care of the farm full-time. Maurice and Carlene had also set up a trust for the money that Martin had inherited so he wouldn't blow it all immediately. He didn't have any real concept of money or an understanding of math. They arranged to have the money dispersed to him in a way that would ensure it lasted the rest of his life. In August of 1993, Maurice went to Copping to spend the weekend at the farm. He called Carlene that night and told her that he had arrived and that he loved her. Then he called his daughter Lindy and told her that he loved her as well. The next morning, a man arrived at the farm for some business and saw a note attached to the front door that read, quote, Call the police. End quote. It was in Maurice's handwriting. Police and firefighters arrived on scene and began searching for the man. During the search, they found Maurice's car parked in a shed with a suicide note left inside. They also found large sums of cash left on the property. Officer Phil Pike tried to get information out of Martin, but he didn't seem interested in helping with the search. He spent most of the time watching the women officers, even asking some of them out to dinner. When they failed to find any clues as to the whereabouts of Maurice on land, they called in divers to check a reservoir at the back of the property. In the water, they found Maurice face down with a diving weight wrapped around his body. In his pocket, they found a container of anti-anxiety pills with 18 pills missing. Oddly enough, they also found several sheep carcasses in the reservoir which just added more questions to the already confusing case. Police were suspicious of Martin at first because he showed no reaction when he saw his father's dead body. He made a positive ID and then walked back to the house, laughing to himself. On one hand, this was a second death of someone close to the young man. On the other hand, he was known to have a developmental disability that made him not process information the same way others did. Once the coroner reviewed Maurice's medical records and his history of depression, he ruled the death to be a suicide. Martin then received another $250,000 to add to his recent windfall. Without his father to keep his behavior in check, Martin began acting even more odd. He would attempt to make friends with children in the area. The children knew that Martin was someone to stay away from, though, so his attempts to find new friends failed. That was for the best, since Martin had begun collecting pornography videos that included violence and bestiality. Martin wasn't really known for his restraint when talking about his own interests, no matter the age of his audience. People in town recall him walking around in a straw hat and lizard-skin shoes, dressed in a suit carrying a briefcase. He would tell anyone who would listen about his success as a businessman, earning $400 a week. 
He would go out to dinner by himself, wearing a bright blue suit with flared pants and a ruffled shirt. The other patrons would laugh at the way he was dressed, but Martin didn't understand why. This was his attempt to impress people. The reactions he got from people made Martin decide to use his newfound fortune to travel, mainly to see if there was some place where people would be friendlier to him. He made several trips to the Australian mainland and New Zealand. He traveled to the United States, Japan, and various countries throughout Europe. He never found a place where he felt more welcomed. He told his doctor that the best part of the trips was being able to talk at length to the people who were seated next to him on the plane rides. People who really had no choice but to talk to him and be friendly. Eventually, Martin decided he was done with travel. He felt like there was nowhere in the world that was right for him and he believed everyone was against him. He began formulating a plan to get back at all of those people. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just $39.99. And incredible unsmoked center-cut Irish ham is now just $13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King prawn cocktail and oak and peat cold smoked salmon are just €6. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of €50 or more. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Over the next few years, Martin learned to drive, though he never got his driver's license, and began collecting an arsenal of weapons. He purchased several semi-automatic rifles as well as a 12-gauge shotgun. He purchased a duffel bag that he put two of his rifles and the shotgun in, as well as hundreds of rounds of ammunition. His girlfriend at the time was with him when he bought the duffel bag, and she described him measuring the bag before he bought it. He wanted to make sure his rifles would fit inside. On the morning of April 28, 1996, Martin's alarm went off at 6 o'clock in the morning. Nobody had ever known Martin to use an alarm clock since he never had anywhere to be. His girlfriend was with him, and she left at about 9 a.m. Once she was gone, he loaded the duffel bag and headed out to his yellow Volvo. He drove 45 minutes toward Port Arthur. Witnesses say he stopped into one store at about 10.30 a.m. and purchased a cigarette lighter. Then he stopped at a supermarket and purchased a bottle of tomato sauce. There was never an answer for why he made this purchase. He drove to a gas station where he bought a cup of coffee, then to a different gas station where he purchased fuel in a small gas can. The attendant at the second gas station noticed that Martin had a surfboard strapped to the roof of his Volvo, but the water was very calm, which made it not great for surfing. He then drove to a bed and breakfast called the Seascape Cottage, arriving at about 11.45. Maurice had tried to purchase the property a few years prior, but when he was securing financing, another couple swooped in and purchased it. David Martin and his wife Nolene, who went by Sally, had known the Bryants for years and knew that Maurice was interested in purchasing the property. Martin apparently believed that the disappointment from losing the property was what led to his father's suicide and he blamed David and Sally. Martin pulled an AR-15 rifle out of the duffel bag and entered the Seascape Cottage. 
Sally was just inside the front entrance, and Martin didn't hesitate to shoot her multiple times, killing her. David ran to the front to see what happened, and Martin shot him once, just knocking him down. The attacker gagged David with a cloth and grabbed a knife from the bed and breakfast's kitchen. He stabbed David repeatedly, killing him. After cleaning the blood from his hands, he walked back out to his car, where he was approached by some tourists asking if they could see the accommodations at the cottage. He told them no, that his parents were away and that only his girlfriend was inside. The tourists found Martin to be odd and rude and quickly left. He backed his car up to the front doors of the seascape cottage and unloaded ammunition into the building. He planned to flee to this location and make a sort of last stand here. He locked the door to the cottage and got back in his car, heading south to Port Arthur. Port Arthur was a popular tourist destination and it was particularly busy this day. There were more than 500 visitors on the grounds. The destination had an information center, the Broad Arrow Cafe, a gift shop, the Francis Langford Tea Rooms, and you could tour the church and the model prison. It was a sunny, warm day and the parking lot was full. The security manager, Ian Kingston, told Martin to go to the main parking lot, much further away from the Broad Arrow Cafe, but Martin ignored him and parked in an area behind some buses, not far away from the cafe. Ian noticed, but decided to just ignore it. He carried his duffel bag into the cafe where he ordered lunch, which he ate at a table outside on the cafe deck. Witnesses recalled him talking to other people eating in the area, mentioning how there were a lot of wasps out and there weren't many Japanese tourists. Some believe that Martin was using the term wasp as in white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, a term used for white elite people of English-speaking countries. It seemed as though Martin was using it to refer to white people in general. Though Martin had never shown any signs of racism prior to this point, it seemed he was interested in targeting Asian tourists more than anyone else. Once he was finished with his meal, he went back into the cafe, placed his tray on a table, and pulled out a video camera from his duffel bag. He set it on the table, facing the customers, and then took the knife he had used to kill David out of the bag and placed it on the table. It was still covered in blood. Next, he reached into the bag and pulled out an AR-15 rifle and immediately shot two tourists from Malaysia, Mo Yi Ying and Su Lang Chung. Martin swung around and began firing at anyone near him. He shot at Mick Sargent, who was sitting with his girlfriend, Kate Scott, and the bullet grazed his head. As Mick fell to the floor, he thought he had been fatally wounded. By the time he was able to get his bearings and look around, he could see that Kate was on the floor next to him, dead from a bullet wound to the back of the head. People began diving for cover, and one man, Jason Winter, threw his tray at Martin in an attempt to distract him so his wife could take cover with their 15-month-old child, which seemed to work, though it cost Jason his life. One of Martin's bullets went through Walter Bennett's neck, and ballistic evidence showed that the bullet then struck Ray Sharp in the head, killing both men. He shot Carolyn Lofton in the back, but failed to kill her. Then he shot her 15-year-old daughter, Sarah, to death as Carolyn tried to shield her from the gunman. Martin was using jacketed rounds that not only caused more damaging wounds, but would break apart on impact, causing other people to suffer injuries from the shrapnel. Ian Kingston heard popping sounds and screaming, so he ran toward the cafe. He originally thought that there may have been an electrical issue causing the popping sounds. Once he got to the entrance, he saw bodies on the ground and blood everywhere. He witnessed Martin firing on the more than 60 people that were in the cafe at the time. 
As Martin walked out of view, Ian grabbed as many people as he could and helped them out of the cafe, but he was being blocked by people trying to get in. As the shooting started, many people didn't realize it was real and assumed there was some sort of reenactment going on and they were flocking to the cafe to see what was happening. Ian said, quote, He got to a point where I could get out. I got to the door and with me I took as many people as I could, but the problem was that every person that was within a few seconds running from the cafe was flocking in. They were flocking in through the front door, probably 30 or 40 people trying to get into the cafe as I was trying to get people out, the ones that were closer to the door. I had to yell out, get out, get out, there's a gunman in here. They wouldn't move and in the finish I yelled out, fire, end quote. That seemed to get people to run from the building and take cover elsewhere. In less than a minute, Martin had killed 12 people and 10 were wounded. Martin moved from the cafe to the gift shop, where he continued to shoot anyone he saw. People tried to hide behind tables, but Martin was using armor-piercing bullets, which went straight through the wood. He killed the two cashiers at the gift shop register, then he killed multiple people trying to flee out the back door, only to have found out that it was locked. Martin backtracked through the cafe, killing more people that he had missed the first time and grabbed some ammunition out of his bag. After reloading his rifle, he threw the duffel bag over his shoulder and exited the cafe. Mark Kirby was a bricklayer who had been hired to do some repairs on a number of buildings at Port Arthur. He had been behind schedule, so he was working weekends to get caught up. He was on a motorized lift, working on the brick about three stories up on the penitentiary across from the cafe when he heard the gunshots. Out of context, though, he really didn't know they were gunshots. Like Ian, he thought there was some sort of mechanical or electrical issue happening in the cafe. When he noticed that people started to flee the area, he decided to lower himself down and go investigate. Martin had come out of the cafe and was firing at people in the parking lot when Mark started up the motor to the lift. Martin heard the sound and fired two shots at Mark, but missed. In the parking lot, he shot one woman in the thigh and shattered her femur so severely that fragments of the bone flew out and injured a nearby bus driver. Both would survive their wounds. It seemed as though the AR-15 wasn't as good for shooting at a longer range, so Martin walked to the parking lot toward his Volvo. As he walked to his car, he fired at anything that moved. When he reached the Volvo, he opened the trunk, dropped the AR-15 in, and pulled out a 308 FN automatic rifle. Now with a fresh, fully loaded weapon, he walked over to the buses that people were trying to hide in. He went into one bus and killed anyone he could find. Once back out of the bus, he shot a few more people before going back to his car and driving away. People were flooding the emergency services line with calls about the shooting. The closest police station was in Hobart, nearly an hour away. The two closest officers were about 14 miles or 22 kilometers away. As Martin drove out of the parking lot, a woman, Nanette McCocke, and her two children, three-year-old Madeline and six-year-old Alana, were running toward the toll booths into the park, to what they thought was safety. Nanette and her husband Walter ran a pharmacy in Nobina, just west of Port Arthur. Nanette also worked part-time as a tour guide at Port Arthur. She worked at night giving the ghost tours, telling scary stories about mysteries and apparitions. She was spending time with her kids at Port Arthur while Walter played some golf nearby. As Martin pulled up near them and opened the door, Nanette believed that it was someone offering help. Martin pulled out a rifle and ordered Nanette to her knees. She begged him not to hurt her children, as he shot her once in the temple, killing her. 
He then shot Madeline twice, killing her as Alana ran and hid behind a tree. Martin followed the young girl and shot her in the neck, killing her as well. The gunman drove his car up to the toll booth where it seemed that the toll attendants weren't aware of what was going on. By this time, other people had motioned to cars to turn around, which created a blockage at the road into the location. Martin got out of his car and got into an argument with a man who got out of the back seat of a BMW and approached him. It's unclear what the man was attempting to do, but it wasn't long before Martin pointed his rifle at him and shot him in the chest, killing him. As the driver of the BMW attempted to run from the car, he was also shot dead. Martin then shot the two women who were still in the BMW and dragged their bodies out of the vehicle onto the ground. Then he returned to his car and grabbed his weapons, ammunition, and other supplies and placed them into the BMW. Inside the Volvo, he left his shotgun and more ammunition. As Martin drove out of Port Arthur, he approached a gas station and pulled in front of a white Toyota Corolla that was about to leave the parking lot. Martin approached the driver, Glenn Pears, and ordered him out of the car. Glenn begged the gunman not to hurt his girlfriend, who was also in the car, as he complied with the orders. Martin forced Glenn into the trunk of the BMW before shutting the lid and walking back to the Toyota where he shot the woman in the car, Zoe Hall, three times, killing her. The seriousness of the attack was being realized as the hospitals were notified to prepare for multiple casualties. Trauma teams were being formed and the emergency rooms were being prepped for the upcoming influx of injured victims. In a rare stroke of luck this unfortunate day, the Royal Hobart Hospital had just completed a disaster plan. The hospital staff had just completed their eight-month review of the strategy for treating a major emergency. Also on this particular day, the Royal Australian College of Surgeons was conducting a course on early management of severe trauma, so the hospital's Director of Emergency Medicine and Surgery was on site. On top of that, there were three rescue helicopters and pilots available when there was usually only one on weekends. Police were now beginning to converge on the area around Port Arthur. The switchboard sent a message to the police station requesting the tactical response unit. It read, quote, 20 dead at Port Arthur, get here now, end quote. One officer arrived at the gas station just minutes after Martin had left and found the station attendant and other customers hiding inside. The attendant told the officer which way Martin had driven, and the officer sped down the road in an attempt to catch him. Martin had shot at one vehicle while driving back to the seascape cottage. The vehicle's windshield was shattered, but the driver was not injured. When he arrived at the cottage, he stood on the road and began firing at people standing outside a nearby building. Then he began shooting at cars as they were driving by. One of the vehicles slowed down, thinking that Martin was hunting rabbits, but he turned and fired the weapon directly at them. One bullet actually severed the throttle cable, and when the driver attempted to speed away, they were out of luck. Fortunately, they were going downhill, so the car rolled on its own out of sight of the gunman, and nobody in the car was killed. The driver was struck in the arm, but survived. The next car got a bullet to the windshield, and the driver was able to speed up to get past the madman shooting indiscriminately at passing vehicles. They passed the occupant from the previous car who attempted to wave them down, but they didn't stop at first. They quickly had second thoughts and turned around to pick up the bleeding woman and her boyfriend and take them to safety. Another woman drove by Martin and was shot in the hand before other drivers began backing up and fleeing the area. 
Once the road was clear of targets, Martin got back into the BMW and drove down the driveway to the seascape cottage. He pulled Glenn from the trunk and brought him into the building, handcuffing him to a stair rail. After loading his supplies into the cottage, he poured the can of gas over the BMW and lit it on fire before barricading himself inside the bed and breakfast. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista, or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Not long after arriving back at the seascape, a news reporter called the business looking for information about what was happening in the area. She was randomly calling businesses and just happened to get Martin on the phone, though he told her his name was Jamie, which is strange because he claimed to have carried out the attack so people would remember him. When she asked him what was happening, he responded, quote, lots of fun, end quote. Then he told her if she called again, he would kill his hostage, Glenn. Police began arriving at the scene in Port Arthur just before 3 p.m. It had been close to 90 minutes since Martin Bryant started his shooting spree. Though the gunfire had stopped, people were still hiding when police arrived. Nobody was sure if the gunman was actually gone or not. Police officers surrounded the area with guns drawn, allowing paramedics safe access to the scene so they could treat the wounded. The most seriously injured were airlifted to the Royal Hobart Hospital. Others were taken by ambulance, and the less severe were treated on the scene. A couple of officers who were on their way to Port Arthur happened to see the fire outside of the seascape and approached the building. Martin began firing at the officers, forcing them to dive into a ditch to take cover. Anytime they tried to leave the ditch, he shot at them, leaving them stuck in the ditch for hours. Calls came into officers at Port Arthur that the perpetrator had barricaded himself in the seascape cottage, and many officers left the area to assist in the situation there. At about 9 p.m., a team from the Special Operations Group were able to pull the officers from the ditch using the cover of darkness and bulletproof shields. They didn't provide cover fire because they didn't know if anyone else was in the building with Martin. A negotiator, Terry McCarthy, arrived on the scene and got Martin on the phone. When Martin answered, he cheerfully said, Hello? Terry was initially taken back by the lack of seriousness in the man's voice. The negotiator asked if he was speaking to Martin, but the gunman corrected him and said he was Jamie. Terry asked, quote-unquote, Jamie, how he was doing, to which the man responded, quote, Oh, couldn't be better, just like on a Hawaiian holiday, end quote. Terry asked him to clarify what he meant by that, but Martin said he didn't really know. Even though Terry was an experienced senior negotiator, he was at a loss for what to do with Martin. The man seemed to have no real reason for what he had done, and he had no demands. After receiving reports that witnesses had seen Martin abduct a man at a gas station and not being able to find David and Sally Martin, who owned the seascape, 
police began operating under the assumption that there were hostages inside. Still, without any demands, the negotiator continued talking to Martin for hours. He repeatedly requested that the police back away from the building and asked that a sniper be moved from his position. Authorities were unsure how he was able to see in the darkness and thought he might have had some sort of night vision device, but none was ever found on the scene. Martin never brought up the attack on Port Arthur, and when Terry mentioned it, Martin acted as if he didn't know anything about it. He asked if anyone had been hurt, and the negotiator told him there were several injuries. Then Martin asked, quote, they weren't killed, end quote, like he was disappointed by the news of only injuries. Terry said he didn't have all the details, making sure not to confirm any deaths. When Terry finally asked him to put down his weapon and come out, Martin finally had a demand. He wanted a helicopter. He told the negotiator that he could buy a helicopter. He became agitated and began saying that he had enough money to buy a helicopter. He said he had all the wealth he wanted. Shortly after, the cordless phone that Martin was talking on ran out of battery and died. The negotiator was now cut off from the man that was clearly a massive danger to anyone around him. Earlier that day, Martin Bryant had become one of the deadliest mass shooters in the world. The entire time that Terry McCarthy was on the phone with Martin, he was listening for any sign of life in the background, but never heard anything. Authorities believed that Martin had killed his hostages, but couldn't take a chance storming the building. They waited through the night with the intention of coming up with a plan once they could use the daylight to see if they could make a better determination of the hostages. At about 8 o'clock the following morning, smoke began to rise from the seascape cottage. Martin had set the building on fire, and it's unclear if he was going to try to kill himself in the fire, but ten minutes after the fire was set, the front doors burst open and Martin appeared. His clothes were on fire, and he began rolling around in the grass to put them out. Officers moved in, covered him with a blanket to extinguish the fire, and placed him under arrest. When they were finally able to enter the building, they found Glenn dead from a gunshot wound. It would be determined that he had died before the fire was set. David and Sally's bodies were also found and determined to be shot prior to the assault at Port Arthur. Martin suffered from severe burns over several parts of his body and was treated at the Royal Hobart Hospital, the same place his surviving victims were also being treated. He had killed 35 people and injured 23 more in 24 hours. While recovering in the hospital, Martin was heavily guarded, and one of the officers who was assigned to guard duty was Officer Phil Pike. He had been involved in the search for Maurice Bryan just a few years earlier. His job was not only to ensure that Martin didn't escape or hurt one of the hospital staff, who he had threatened multiple times, but also to make sure Martin wasn't harmed himself. Police received many tips that people were coming to the area to settle the score with Martin for what he had done. Officer Pike would later say that if anyone had come to attack Martin, his focus would have been on protecting the hospital staff more than the cold-blooded killer who was handcuffed to the bed. Martin was charged with 72 crimes, 35 counts of murder, 21 counts of attempted murder, and multiple counts of aggravated assault, wounding, causing grievous bodily harm, and unlawfully setting fire to property. The Tasmanian Director of Public Prosecution said, quote, the grief and anguish that is experienced following the sudden and unexpected loss of a life's companion or lover, a parent, a child, 
or a cherished friend is a human emotion which requires no explanation. And in times of strife or human conflict or even natural disaster, we tend to accept loss of life or significant personal injury as one of the exigencies of the environment or times within which we live. There is no everyday experience which can condition the human psyche for a violent assault upon it of the proportions of Martin Bryant's senseless criminal behavior on 28 April 1996. End quote. Martin only confessed to kidnapping Glenn Pears at first. He said that he had taken him at gunpoint and put him in the trunk of the BMW, but he didn't shoot Zoe Hall. He also claimed that Glenn must have died in the trunk. This is him talking about the incident. I saw this car, right? None of what Martin said made any sense, though. If Glenn died in the trunk of the car, how did he get inside the seascape, handcuffed to a rail, with a bullet wound? He claimed that he had never been to Port Arthur that day, but how did he get the BMW, and why was his car left there? People at Port Arthur described him perfectly, and people at the gas station saw him shoot Zoe. Martin doesn't care that his answers don't make sense. He's having fun messing with the investigators. He is smiling and laughing throughout his entire interrogation video. At one point, Martin thought the camera had been turned off and said this. Haha, don't you wish you had that confession recorded? Oh, it is recorded? Oops. Martin told his lawyer that he had killed David and Sally Martin because they had bought the Seascape Cottage and because he tried to use his inheritance money to buy their farm, but they wouldn't sell it to him. His lawyer believed that after he killed them over that, he knew he would go to prison, so he decided he wanted to go out with a bang. Everything from that point on became about gaining notoriety as the worst mass murderer in the history of Australia. The trial began with Martin pleading not guilty to all the crimes. During the trial, when footage of the attack that had been taken by a tourist with a video camera was shown, Martin could be seen smiling and laughing openly. At one point, Martin told his lawyer that he would plead guilty to the murders, but still wanted to plead not guilty to the attempted murders. He wanted the people who lived through his attack to have to come into court and point him out. He wanted to be able to continue inflicting emotional pain on the people he had already hurt. Not only did he show absolutely no remorse for his crime, but he wanted to continue to do damage. He told his lawyer that he wished he had killed more people. 
This attitude flies in the face of the conspiracy theorists who claim the entire incident was staged by the gun control lobby to gain support for gun control laws. If you're the type of person who believes you should shit on the memory of the victims of violent crime because you're paranoid that people are trying to take your guns away, go fuck yourself. If that offends you, then please, by all means, unsubscribe. You don't need to waste your time leaving a comment telling us about it. Just go away. You can piss off and listen to your hero, Alex Douchebag Jones. Thank you very much. If Martin Bryant had spent any time at all seriously denying that he was involved in the massacre that occurred on April 28, 1996, maybe I would entertain some idea that he was innocent, but his behavior makes it clear that he's guilty. Even without the mountain of evidence that proves his guilt, his desire to entertain himself by messing with the investigators and the surviving victims makes the truth painfully obvious. But there was evidence. Once Martin decided to plead guilty to the murders, he drew a number of maps that showed exactly how the attacks happened at Port Arthur, the gas station, and from the Seascape Cottage. He had also previously claimed that he didn't remember anything about what happened that day, and this proved otherwise. Martin's car was recovered from Port Arthur, which had a shotgun and ammunition in it. His other guns were recovered from the Seascape Cottage. Several eyewitnesses identified him at Port Arthur, the gas station, and from where he was shooting people on the roadside. Those people testified, telling the details of Martin shooting the people around them, laughing maniacally the entire time. One of those eyewitnesses was Ian Kingston at Port Arthur, who got a very good look at Martin when he was trying to park and watched him go into the cafe. Martin was very self-conscious about his intellect, or lack thereof. As a child, he had been tested as having an IQ of 66, which made him lack much of the understanding of things that the average person did. His lawyer explained to him that the media was just going to refer to him as dim and simple during the trial, and it didn't look good for him. That plan worked, and the following day, Martin wrote out a simple confession and signed it. Martin Bryant was sentenced to 35 life sentences without the possibility of parole, totaling over a thousand years in prison. He was sentenced to 21 terms of 21 years in prison to be served concurrently, also without the possibility of parole. Martin showed no emotion as the judge read the sentence. The first eight months of Martin's time in prison was spent in the psychiatric ward of Risden Penitentiary. Doctors there determined that there was almost no hope of ever rehabilitating him. He had the maturity level of an 11-year-old and didn't care about anything but himself. He has never showed any remorse for the lives he took. Prison staff reported that he would regularly remind them that he was Australia's worst mass murderer. Once, Martin asked a nurse if she had children, and when she said yes, he suggested she bring them in for a visit. Then he held his hand up like a gun, pointed at her, and made a sound like he was shooting her. Martin believed that prison was where he would find people who would finally treat him with respect. But Martin underestimated the average prison inmate. Even the most hardened criminal is not a fan of someone who harms children. When news spread that Martin had ruthlessly executed a six-year-old and a three-year-old, he became a huge target of violence by other inmates. Authorities didn't think he would last more than a few days in general population before being killed, so he spent all of his confinement in protective custody. 
In the more than two decades that Martin has been in prison, he has attempted suicide six times. Once he tried to hang himself with a bedsheet, and another time he tried to swallow a tube of toothpaste which got lodged in his throat. The prison has constructed a special cell for him to reduce his ability to attempt suicide. He's watched at all times by three different cameras as well. In recent years, the media has reported that new evidence has revealed that Martin did in fact kill his father and Helen Harvey. I haven't been able to find any new information that would prove he killed either of the two. Circumstances were definitely suspicious at the time of the deaths, and supposedly Martin knew about both of the inheritances. He was definitely capable of murdering both of them, but he was always struggling to make friends and was angry at the way most people treated him, so it would seem strange for him to kill his closest friend who treated him well. I don't think that we'll ever know for sure if either death was directly caused by Martin. Today, Martin still lives in protective custody and his life is no different than it was before he became a murderer. He is alone and misunderstood and will likely live the rest of his life that way. The one thing that he believed would change his life and make him into some prison celebrity has done the opposite. The prison inmates and guards dislike him more than people did before he carried out his crime. People before just found him annoying because they didn't understand him. Now people actually hate him for a very specific and very good reason. Because he's a monster. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see certaireland.ie. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 